Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Daytona Beach, Florida, as my family and I continue the RV adventure in the Grinnebago. We are coming up on nine months on the road, and I am super excited to welcome Dale Wright, who is the Associate Dean for Advancement at the Granger College of Engineering at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Dale. Thanks, Brent. And uh, sounds like you and your family are on quite the adventure. It has been a year uh, on, on many levels, but we've uh, been fortunate to make lemonade. Uh, we are beginning our trip back uh, to the Northeast, to New England, uh, where we should arrive hopefully in early May. Um, but the show must go on, and we've been fortunate to be able to host many great guests, including yourself, uh, over the last several months on the road. And uh, what I've really enjoyed doing, we're certainly going to talk state of the world and advancement, what you're excited about, what you're nervous about and all of that today. But I love going back in time. And uh, I want you to take me back to Dale, junior, senior year of high school in Southeast Missouri. Uh, who was that guy? What was he into? And ultimately, what led you to go to the University of Missouri uh, in Columbia? Yeah, so, so it's actually a really good period in my life, uh, uh, Brent, for, for me, uh, because I, I, I had a chance between my junior and senior year to attend the American Legion, uh, Boy State of Missouri, or more commonly known as Missouri Boy State program. And I will tell you, it transformed my life and really how I thought about what was possible uh, right. for, me, for me to accomplish. You know, it was, it was a chance for me. I mean, I was in a, from a relatively small town. Um, uh, it, most people haven't heard of Kennett, Missouri where I grew up, but they have heard of Cheryl Crow, uh, who shares the hometown with me uh, uh, in that regard. And so, you know, like most kids, I'm, I, my parents um, didn't go to college and a lot of folks in that area didn't go to college. And so, you know, you're in high school, you're just trying to figure out what, what are you going to do? And, you know, growing up, my parents work, you know, at factories or in grocery stores and things like that. And not that there's anything wrong with that work, but I kept thinking maybe, you know, maybe I've got a chance here to go to college and maybe do something a little bit different. And, but going to Boy State was, was wonderful because, you know, it took me, I was there with seven of guys from my high school, but they, we go to this campus in Warrensburg, Missouri, of all places. I never really heard of Warrensburg before, but you go there and it's just this, they just throw you to the wolves a little bit here. Like there's a thousand kids from all across the state of Missouri. And they say, hey, we're gonna put you in this sort of political laboratory. You say, I'm not really interested in politics, but you realize early on that politics was was really the was really just the backdrop to help you develop your leadership potential and also make you appreciate what is what it's like to be a good citizen, right? And so so there was that experience. So here I am, we get we get there, it's like an eight-hour bus ride from my hometown to this place, and you get there and it's Saturday and everyone's pepped up. And then by Saturday night, they're like, okay, well. You guys have got to take over and be in control for this week. So you've got to build, you've got to learn how to build a government and you've got to build it from the municipal at the city level, county level, state level. So before I knew it, Brent, I, I had no plans for this program at all. And next thing I know, I'm just, I'm one of the earliest people who arrive. I start meeting people. Someone says I should run for mayor. <laughs> I'm like, what? And so I run for mayor, I get elected mayor and it, is the best experience I could have ever had in terms of just learning how to deal with peers and manage people and that just that, that, that sort of thing. And so, so from there, I realized that one week experience made me believe in myself in a way that just nothing else had to date. And so I, I'm actually still very active in the program and volunteer to this day and spent 10 years as, as the Dean of Counselors, helping recruit and train other counselors to come to this program and give back. So it's, I can't say enough about, about what that did to transform my life. Is it okay if I call you Mayor Wright? <laughs> you know, my kids don't so Mayor Wright, let my me kids just, aren't impressed by it, Brent. So yes. <laughs> well I well I am, and you can you can let them know that uh, to the to the extent they care. Um, but but I mean that sounds pretty transformational, but at the same time, you know, it was more of a spark. And so yeah, you come back, you know, back to Kenneth, Missouri. And it sounds like your whole outlook, you're energized, uh, but then you're kind of back on Monday morning, you know, into the old routine. What was it that kind of allowed you to maintain momentum? Uh, and then ultimately, how did it shape your journey to Columbia? 
Yeah, I so I I think it was it was just it was just more of that daily affirmation. Like anytime I would kind of get down or whatever, I, it seemed it seems kind of silly. You know, sometimes you look back at it, but I I would say remember though, you stood up in front of sixty people you just met, right? So if you can convince sixty people that you just met that you that you might stand a chance of if they fall if, if they join you in this in these goals you could do something pretty special. And so once, once I got back home, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm most of these folks I've grown up and know my entire life. And so let's just go out and have the best, you know, senior year that we can have. And um, I will tell you, I, I applied to several, was thought of applying to several schools, but I knew that, you know, just my own home situation, Mizzou was really, was, was not, it wasn't, it wasn't just like, I wasn't like my settle school. I mean, but when you grow up in the state of Missouri and, right? Like you, you're proud of the Missouri Tigers. And so for me, it was like, my goal was, I want to do well enough that I could get early admittance. And if I can get early admittance and get some scholarships, well, this would be a tremendous burden off of my family. And so that was, that, that was what was what really drove me. And so I remember, I can, I remember getting called down to the principal's office to meet with uh, uh, admissions rep. Uh, uh, her name was Leanne Scott, actually, at the time. And now Leanne Stroop, we're still friends to this day. And uh, I remember meeting her that first time and she, you know, giving me the news about my candidacy from Mizzou. And I, I remember it, 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 the rest of my senior year, it just, it, it felt much, much like a dream because I knew at the end of all of this, you know, right? Like when I finished high school, I knew I was going to the place that, that I loved and that was the University of Missouri. So it was, it was, it was all pretty magical. And so making your way up there, did it feel, uh, I don't know, reminiscent of Boy State, just getting thrown into a new community? My understanding is you did embrace some leadership, student leadership opportunities. Um, what really stands out to you during that time? Yeah. And so, you know, when you're when, you know, coming from a small town, there were a lot, a lot of folks who had gone to Mizzou. So I knew you know, a lot of folks ahead of me in, 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 in school had gone there and, you know, and, and had their journeys and things. So so going to Mizzou really felt it felt it didn't feel as big as I, <laughs> as, as, as I thought, you know, I mean, it's Mizzou, the Mizzou campus is like three times the size of the town I grew up in, but, but getting there, what was great about it was the number of guys who we would run into each other and say, did you go to Boy State or we would all be wearing our Boy State, you know, you wear your Boy State t-shirt around campus your freshman year early on. And so you, what I, what I became to realize was really the importance and value of cultivating networks. Now I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't articulated articulate enough about it at that time, but that was really what that was really what it was. And so that so it was just constantly building on that and and being comfortable in my own skin and branching out and meeting different people and getting to know them. And before I knew it, that there's just people just kept opening up worlds to me, you know, at Mizzou and yeah. or or at least or at least cracking the door open. And sometimes I'd gently push it and sometimes I'd kick it in and and you know, I look, I look back, and I say, "Wow, what a what a tremendous experience!" And um, one of the, one of the most transformative experiences I had there was uh, uh, being inducted into uh, Mystical Seven, which is one of our six uh, secret honorary societies uh, at the University of Missouri. So, um, so basically, a- annually, almost for almost a hundred years now, there's been this tap day ceremony, where these groups who just work underground and behind the scenes to try out a better university have this day where where they introduce us as their newest initiates and uh i, I feel like you're, you're sharing secrets i shouldn't know about right nah, now I, I can share that because that's at least a public event i can't tell you anything else, uh, oh, <laughs> anything come on. else about it but but what was what 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 was just remarkable about it is in as as our name says it suggests it's there's only seven students that are chosen on out of the available, you know, juniors and seniors, and one well, one sophomore because they become the president of the organization to kind of keep the continuity. But like I, I sometimes look back at that and I say, well, there was no application process, <laughs> no no formal ap- application process, and 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 then a- being a member of it, you realize you they really there really are just there were just a group of people who were just trying to understand who's just trying to do good things. And trying to do good work, and you realize that that's sort of how you come to the attention of the members, and that's and then we pass that along to the next generation, where we say, look, we're not necessarily looking for the people who were the star quarterback on the basket or the football team, or right or the 
point guard or power forward on the basketball team or what have you. That, so that's to say that those folks aren't getting selected because they are. But it's just a matter of just go out, just be a good person, try to try to be a, va- a value and of service to others. And, you know, good things can happen. And so that was so that that, that was remarkable and had up other experiences where where I first got introduced to advancement. And at the time, I didn't think of this as a career, but I'm like, oh, wow, there are opportunities for students to, to get to know alumni and do all these great things and plan homecoming and celebrations and things like that. And so that was actually how I got introduced to to the getting introduced to the alumni association and getting to meet the leadership was how I ended up falling into the advancement field in and of itself. And uh, and so it was the the homecoming steering committee was sort of the the gateway to advancement. It was that that was that was my gateway was like having yeah. the experience working with the alumni but, team yeah. and stuff. I mean, I, I love what you're touching on right now because I do think you know without a doubt higher education. Uh, you know, it's going to constantly be under pressure for what's the value, you know, what's the return on investment, you know, what's the lifelong impact and can education be delivered more efficiently online, for example, than um, through traditional four-year programs like you and I participated in. Um, But then I constantly come back to stories like yours, whether it was the Boys State immersive experience, um, the, the, you know, the um, student leadership that you were able to embrace the relationships. It's really you know, in a certain regard, it's 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 a little bit that the education is somewhat of a commodity, but it's the relationship building that I don't know. Like, how do you do Boys State over Zoom? You know, I'm not sure that you can. And you probably have an answer to that because they probably had to figure something out this year. But just compared to that immersive experience you had, that immersive, um, you know, campus experience at Mizzou, I, I just struggle a little bit with the thought that there's truly like an online replacement for that um, that can that can foster the same type of relationships. No, I think that's that's absolutely right, Brent. Right? Like, I mean, there is there is there is the magic of what happens right when people can be in the same space with each other, right? Like, they're just in a way that you you will, you could just not replicate, <laughs> and just some of the experiences just that just happen from really experiencing things for the first time together that I just, I don't know that you can do. I think there's, I think there's some, obviously we've learned a lot during this pandemic, whether it's Boy State where we, where we opted not to have a program last year, because to your point, trying to figure out how to take an almost 80 year program <laughs> that's so immersive and put it on screens. When, when we knew that, that people had a hard enough time just trying to do this for their schoolwork like their actual schoolwork and, you know, and, 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 and what we learned about, um, you know, the, the inherent difficulties and issues, yeah. especially coming from a rural community where there's not this broadband access and these types, right. of, you know, you really realize about these inequalities. And so that's where, that's where these traditional, these big campuses can really do. And I think what we've learned though online is, okay, what are the things that we can kind of do that are precursors to like make the, in-person experience an even better experience right yeah. like i think that's probably that's that's where online can play a role but yeah i'm <laughs> this, the immersive the immersiveness this is because that's what we need as humans well and we've talked about it a fair amount on the podcast which is the idea of uh, you know, kind of low roi versus high roi in-person experiences right we talk about like high roi experience is that really special you know, moment with a donor where maybe the gift commitment is happening, or maybe there's a celebration, or maybe there's the unveiling on campus. But I think I would argue low ROI travel is discovery officer going out, just trying to get some meetings. Um, I think that is work that, that now we've all come to see can be done not only as well, but I think significantly much better, more efficiently improve the donor experience. Um, and, and I think it's the same sort of thing where events, uh, you know, alumni events going forward, what's the boy state equivalent for Mizzou? Well, it's probably homecoming. And are you going to want to do homecoming on zoom forever? No, you want to do that there, but there might be a whole bunch of other things you now can do via hybrid experiences that allow you to reach people globally, that allow you to reach people in communities where you're not going to have a local chapter. And so I think that's hopefully the balance, um, that we're able to strike coming out of this. And I would imagine even with Boy State, you can probably now do your leadership committee meetings 
via Zoom without everybody having to travel certain areas, or you can now meet monthly instead of twice a year. And, you know, that's a huge improvement. No, that's, that, yeah, that, right. That's exactly, that's exactly right, Brent. I, I completely agree, right? Mixing, how do you mix those things in so that when you are in person, you get, you know, you, you, you innovate in a way that you, you, you didn't even, you didn't even think was possible because you used to rely on solely on getting together and, and trying to tackle these very big, sometimes very big situations. <laughs> and then, you know, you start out energetic and then after eight hours, <laughs> you know, over two days, you're like, okay, all right, we, this is not, we should, we could probably do more, but we just, all of us are spent. We, we, we just, we can't do anything more here, you know? So you go from Kenneth to Boy State to Mizzou to the homecoming committee to knowing what advancement is to almost a 15 year career at Mizzou in an industry where there's a ton of turnover and people having to feel like they need to hop from one institution to another to advance, you know, their, their, their career, their compensation. You are one of the rare few who's been able to um, not only find a path at the alma mater, but, but make it work for more than a decade. Yeah, that no, it's it's so true, and and I I uh, I talk about this often with groups. As I say, you know, one of the one of the greatest things that happened to me, and I think what led to me staying in advancement was was being able to be a, have the immersive experience experience in alumni relations, because it really does it really does teach you to be a whole ambassador for the institution, right? Because when you're an alumni programs officer and you're working, you know, vo- volunteers for alumni chapters, for instance. They look to you to be sort of their main conduit to campus. You know, you got to be an admissions rep. <laughs> you, gotta, you know, you got to you got to be an athletic scribe. You got to know you got to know all these things simultaneously at times, and then you have to figure out what's most what's the most appropriate message, and you got to stay on message, and you know all these things. And oftentimes, for some communities, right, like you you are the chancellor, you are that president, because those folks may not ever get there but you might be that, that conduit. So that was really important to me. And so as I, as I moved more in the fundraising, I, I used to say that, look, if I can ask people to, to send membership dollars to Columbia, Missouri, and they live you know, in San Jose, California, or in New York, I think I can ask them to you know, ask them for, for, uh, for, for different types of financial support. And so that was, that was really what happened. And then I was, I was really fortunate. You're right. There's, there's a lot of movement. And I certainly, there were opportunities that came across my lap where it was like, come here and for this, you know, extra and, you know, early, early on, early on when I wasn't sure, quite frankly, if I wanted to make a career out of this, it was, it was like easy to say no. Right. And so, and so then, uh, but just as I was actually transitioning out of the alumni office and looking at a, at a frontline fundraiser role at Mizzou, I, I actually met a pretty special uh, young lady at the time uh, who, who had come to Mizzou for graduate school. And I actually was introduced to her by my intern who was in her graduate program uh, while I was, when I was in the Alumni Association because she was a, like a student affairs uh, uh, degree seeker. So she came over and was my intern since I did all this student programming. So I, so I met uh, this young lady who then became my wife. And then right as she was getting out of graduate school, she, um, she, she got a full-time job at Mizzou. So, so while we were dating, it was very important to figure out how to make, you know, staying at Mizzou um, work. And then, and then it just, it just blossomed that she came to Mizzou for graduate school, but fell in love with the place as much as I did. And so that, that sort of helped us, help ground us in, uh, in, in Columbia. And our, our, we have four, four daughters and two of them were born you know, in Columbia. And so we were both, we were both in our own professional tracks and, you know, really enjoying it. And so it, it I, I always said that it would, it would take a lot to get me to move from, from Mizzou, you know, at that point, but I also knew I wanted to experience, uh, you know, different situations, different settings, because I was really enjoying mm-hmm. uh, being in the, in the advancement field. And so at the, at, at we got to a point where I said, look, if Mizzou doesn't have the kind of opportunities that I feel like I need to, to, for me to take that next step, that's going to be okay. No hard feelings. And if, if the right opportunity comes along, then, you know, we'll, we'll take a good look at it. And then next thing we know, this opportunity to come to the, at, at that time, the college of engineering, which is, you know, globally ranked in the top 10 of all engineering schools. It was like, I can't, I can't pass that up. <laughs> no, you know, no offense to Mama Mater, which has its own share of really great 
highly ranked, highly respected programs, but it was like, okay, I'm going to go learn a new discipline. I'm going to go learn a new work with a new set of uh, donors and, and volunteers and things like that. Right. And so, so that, 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 that sort of made it easier that it was, it was a lot different than what I was doing at Mizzou and that Mizzou just couldn't replicate. So that's, that's how we ended up coming to coming to Illinois. Well, we'll jump into the Illinois move real soon, but I just got to ask, you know, 14 plus years working in advancement in a variety of roles there. Uh, what was your number one memory? Like when you think back, just the absolute highlight, um, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I was, I would say it was, it was getting to know uh, the Brazil family <laughs> uh, because um, uh, they, and I've told them this often, even as we, we stay in contact to this day, you know, they were really the first donors who took a chance on me who was really getting started, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in advancement. And uh, several years ago, uh, I was uh, involved with uh, the Council for Advancement and Supportive Education case in District 6, and they would have an annual conference. And one year it was in Kansas City, and this family lived, lived in the Kansas City area. And so we actually did, I actually put together a presentation where I described uh, this, my relationship with them and how we sort of went from them being four-figure donors to a million plus donor uh, to the to the institution uh, in this program that was very important to them. And since we were in Kansas City, so I, I gave the background and then Jim, Jim Brazil was, was gracious enough to come. And then I basically interviewed him in front of colleagues and then they were able to ask him direct questions. And, and, I, and I said it to them there that like, they didn't have to give me a shot. By the time I was introduced to them, they had probably met with no less than, I think we did the, when we did the count it up, they probably met with 12 or 13 fundraisers, unique fundraisers from the University of Missouri from the time that they started really writing that first check and indicating that they were really interested in what the university was talking about in terms of diverse, the, in, improving not just the diversity of the student body, but the experience of diverse students. And so that was so when I when I went into their door, Brent, I told you about feeling like feeling so well prepared from an alumni association standpoint. When I when I went in, I just said to them, I said, look, I know I've seen your record. I know you've met with a lot of people. You've kind of asked all these questions. And, and I said, it just so happened that part of my job with the alumni association was to be a link between uh, our office and the Missouri Cong Congressional Black Caucus. So I actually I actually have I actually have this report on all of these things that we're doing at the University of Missouri. And we can talk about where maybe where we identify some gaps. So if you'd be interested in having this discussion, I'm happy to come to Kansas City. So this was in February of uh, 2002. And by April of 2002, I meet Jim and Kathy, his lovely wife for the first time. And that started about a year, a little, a little over a year journey that led us to their first real starter investment, uh, which was a $300,000 gift that was going to support the Honors College at the University of Missouri, which had struggled with convincing right, students of color who qualify for this to actually take full advantage of it. And so what we did was we, de we designed a scholarship that was complementary to other large, the largest scholarships that we had for high ability, high, uh, talented African-American students. And we did other, other cool things where we built the gift in a way that would allow for them to take care of a bulk of the tuition and room and board, but also build in dollars for future study abroad opportunities. And so then it automatically became this really attractive, you know, scholarship. And so after, you know, after they had one scholarship student and that student succeeded. Naturally, they wanted to see about how, how could we help more students, you know? And so that was what led to like additional investment. Well, and it's just a wonderful, Dale, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Dale, can you tell me more about, if you recall, for that one student, you know, were there any things you did to facilitate that relationship between the one student uh, and the Brazil, just, yeah, yeah. To make sure that they really felt the impact and were inspired to consider more, because it's fair to say if they hadn't felt that connection or, you know, hadn't had that sort of stewardship or didn't feel like that it was driving the kind of impact that they wanted, maybe that would have been the end of the, the relationship. 
No, that's 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 actually very how right you are, I should say, Brent. Because one of the, one of the nice things in this situation was the honors college was not a place that people naturally look to for you know for investment, right? And so and so why do I why 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 did I think that's a positive? Well, looking back on it now, I'm like, well, we really got the chance to build sort of the next tier of stewardship. Right. Like we weren't sort of beholden. We're like, oh, every well, this is how we this is how we steward scholarships. This is the you know, this is the only way in which we do it. Right. The honors college was just like, look, we're, we're learning as we go. And so what, what, what we figured out really was really important was we looked at, for instance, what was the experience like for students who were qualifying for university provided scholarships of this magnitude? And so what we learned was, OK, students get invited to campus for these interview weekends. And so, you know, their families get a chance to, you know, come to campus and get to meet folks. So we said, oh, let's offer that to the Brazils. Like they can come to campus and folks can kind of, the families can kind of understand, well, here, here are these folks. They're just really, they're really good people who are passionate about, you know, students like, like yours and they, they want to help. So it was, it was really personalizing and making that connection from the very beginning so that when the students were lucky enough to be selected, both the students and their family felt like they already knew each other, you know, right, like in a really special and important way. And then what would happen is the couple, they would love to come down at least once a semester to be able to take the, the student and the honors college director and myself and others to dinner. And then, and so oftentimes this was a chance for us to get the Brazils back to campus. And so maybe they would take in, maybe they sit in on a lecture of an interest. Uh, Jim was a, a history major and, and very interested in that. So that was very fun for, to get him to come back and be able to do that type of thing, right? And so it was really just trying that personalization, but we weren't creating things that we couldn't replicate. We were just simply saying, wait, there are all these great things that are happening. How do we begin to infuse that? And I will tell you, that was really where I started saying, okay, as I move, as I have a chance to move in my career, I don't want to lose sight of the importance of just good stewardship. And I say stewardship from the very beginning, because we were stewarding Jim and Kathy from the very beginning of when we were just thinking about what types of ideas to put in front of them, what types of questions were we asking them to, to understand what's going to be like ultimately most important to them. We didn't think about stewardship solely as the, okay, we're going to get the gift. And now what, now do we, now how do we make them feel like they're making a difference? Yeah, we talk a lot about this idea of perpetual stewardship. It's oftentimes referred, you know, it, it's always associated with what happens after the gift. And I think what you're talking about is what's the before, during, after, you know, full life cycle. And uh, I think that's a really healthy way of looking at it. Um, and and so ultimately, what happened with that relationship? I mean, I, I imagine even as a, you know, as an officer, you, you, you know, or as a fundraiser, you must feel some pressure where you're kind of selling them on this vision. You know, we've got a problem here. We've got an idea for a solution with an you know, initial impact gift of 300,000. Here's the, the dent we could put in that problem. But if it goes well, here's how we would scale from there. And so I imagine you sort of have this period of, well, now I've got, I've got my shot. I can't uh, waste it. I can't, you know, we can't, uh, we have to execute so that they feel like they're making the impact. Um, but they obviously felt that what, what was the end of that story? Or maybe it isn't it. Maybe there isn't an end yet. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's still ongoing. And, and what's, and Brent, what, one of the things that happened interesting enough in there when you talk about like this, the relationship. So we get this first gift and uh, we start, we, so we start, we have to go through that cycle. And then before I know it, there's this opportunity for me to go work in the business school because the actual position that I took that allowed me to actually meet the Brazils was a temporary position because we were we were in a in the at the tail end of a campaign, and so we didn't we had no one really working on like just general sort of unit general unit university unit scholarships and or fellowships. So that was kind of how I spent a lot of my work was just like saying, hey, if you're a donor who doesn't really care, you would you rather the money follow the student, right? Versus what our traditional scholarships are like, Brent. You want this scholarship, you have to know as an 18 year old that you want to major in business and you cannot get off that path. And if you do, you're going to lose out on these scholarship funds, right? 
And so that so that was actually kind of exciting. But but then I here I am. I got this chance to go work in the business school. And while Jim Jim has his MBA also from the university, that wasn't really his passion. So that was also really an important lesson for me. And 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 working. And thankfully, I had a good boss at the time, Mike Haggis, who understood that like, hey, I there's a, there, it's really important for all of us that I continue as the primary relationship builder with Jim and Kathy, but it's got to stay focused on what they want to do. And I can't just come over here to the business school and then suddenly have Jim replicate that kind of giving or his future giving for the business school, because, you know, that's not their focus. And so luckily I'm lucky that Mike was understanding of that. And so I was able to keep working with them, even when I was, you know, in the business school. And then over time, as the university started to put more like honors college fundraisers in place, like fundraising positions in place with honors college, then we started to, you know, make those transitions for some of the more of the day-to-day, but I, but I still always stayed available. And that's, that's the important thing that we have to sometimes think about. Sometimes like donors, they, they view these as relationships with the institution and they view us as important conduits there. But, <laughs> you know, but we can't, if donors th- thought for one second that we had a system where we pretend as if we own, like I own these relationships and only I, I think donors would be sort of turned off by that. So I, you know, we, it was, I was fortunate yeah. that we had a system that allowed for us to, to manage these things more as appropriate as possible. Can I just ask one aside related question? You, you talk about the fact that when you look over their donor history, right, these are folks who graduated, I think, in the 60s or 70s. So yeah, 60s, longstanding yeah. relationship with the university, 12 to 13 contacts over time. And so on one hand, it sounds like, you know, how, how do you have uh, multiple touch points to ensure continuity and that it's not just about Dale, it's about the university and you are that conduit. But at the same time, without the opportunity to have built what sounds like is a really deep and trusting relationship with you. Like what if you had hopped to another job along the way, you know, what impact might that have had on that relationship? And frankly, and this isn't just about Mizzou, but this is about, you know, the sector more broadly. How often do you think in that handoff from one gift officer to another, the ball is dropped. It takes a little bit too long to pick. I mean, it, how big of a problem is that, I guess, from your vantage point? Yeah, I, no, I, look, I, I, I think, you know, just on my own experiences, right, I think a lot oftentimes how we build metrics and, 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 and how we label things as metrics and maybe where things are maybe should be like leading indicators or key performance indicators versus like metrics, I think still plays a big role in why a lot of these, a lot of these issues arise. You know, when I look back on the Brazil, one of the things, and, and Brent, this, this sort of gets into your work, right, where, you know, at the time, one, one of the main reasons why there were so many people that were seeing the Brazils was because we, you know, we started doing more, you know, we, we, as an organization, we started hiring more companies to try to help us, you know, learn more about philanthropic intent and interest and that type of thing, right? So what was happening was we'd get a report on the Brazils and they would say, oh, well, they've been giving locally to the Kansas City Symphony or something like that. So then somebody in, in the School of Music at the University of Missouri says, hey, here's a University of Missouri alum lives in Kansas City who gives in this space. Let's go and talk to them about that. So that became a real issue because like Jim and Kathy are like, okay, but we wrote this letter with this gift that says we're interested in diversity. And now we got the person from the music school not even talking to us about the diversity efforts that might might exist or they want to exist in the school of music no they're just like well we heard that you give to the symphony and did you know that we have a great school of music here at the university of missouri so you got so you got that kind of thing working and then to your point oftentimes when people have to move we keep saying well you got to leave you got to leave that relationship behind because you don't represent that that thing right and it's like but no but we're we're inherently in a relationship business and so what we have to actually do is we actually have to do a better job, right, of building systems and building trust in a way that says, look, we can walk and chew gum at the same time here. And if it makes sense for Dale Wright, even as he moves up, moves to different places of the University of Missouri to be a key conduit and contact and be smart enough to figure out how to make certain that the relationship isn't just about Dale Wright. And Jim and Jim and yeah. Kathy Brazil, 
then, yeah. then then we'll do a much better job. But I think that's where we're I think that's where we still fail a lot of times is and it's hard. Look, we we are we we are most major gift officers. We are we're sort of, we're sort of ego driven, right? Like you can't be this sort of like outward facing person <laughs> without having a little bit of that sense of self, so to speak, right? It's it's what it's sometimes it's what it's it's the difference between the people who just stay at stay asking, and even even though we know that it's a likelihood <laughs> that people will say no more than they say yes, but yeah, with the, but with that being said, we are still dealing with people, and we have to make sure that at the end of the day. Our system supports authenticity of the work and whoever's best of design delivered to do that should stay in building those relationships and then be smart enough and have the right emotional intelligence to bring along the right people. So that again, their relationship is with the institution because at yeah. some point they knew I was going to leave. Right. right. And, and, but the university, if we do the, th- do the right, the university is going to gone. It's going to exist long, long after the Dale rights of the world work there. Well, and I think that's part of what I get excited about from a technology perspective. And I think as a vendor in the space, we and others have a long way to go in this regard is how can we start to say, let's think of the gift officer as the you know, conductor of the orchestra, but they don't need to play all the instruments all the time. And what I mean by that is Dale Wright is the prospect manager today. It'll be Brent Grinna tomorrow. But it doesn't change the fact that student beneficiaries and the dean or this person who's an important part of the program or that faculty member are always going to be on the periphery of the relationship. And I think some of what we've even heard um, as one of the positives of the pandemic is now instead of it just being Dale talking to Brent the donor, Brent talking to Dale the donor, we can invite in that student, that dean, that faculty member, the athletic director the student athlete, they can join the conversation at the beginning of the Zoom, at the end of the Zoom, or send the video before or after. And so it's like, how do we make it such that there is some of those like redundant, like there's redundancy around some of those relationships so that even if Dale moves out, there's still going to be a reminder for the dean or the faculty or the student to have the touch point with the donor. Um, But then ultimately the new Dale, the new fundraiser can hopefully keep the momentum, um, even as they try to build their own direct relationship. I think technology should be able to solve this problem. We're not there yet, um, but, but I'm optimistic that we'll get there. I, no, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I would just add too that, like I, I just think about how, how the pandemic has transformed even my Dean's thinking, right? Where, where it was because like, hey, we would keep this list of folks that we wanted to make sure he connected with and we wanted to be face to face. And it's like, well, a dean. How much more efficient must the dean's life be today? And Mm -hmm. is it really that much worse for the donors that it's not in person? And in some cases, maybe it's better because they could talk to the dean three times a year instead of one, and it's virtual instead of remote, or one times in person and then a few times are virtual. So, what I guess, yeah. yeah. Any other highlights along those lines? Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's exactly right because it 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 it's it 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 sounds so simple, but it's like wait a minute, remember remember why we're reaching out to them, right? Like and so like if if we only if we say hey these are the only times available to us, you got to work around that. How many times do you really think that's going to be effective? When again, we're the one who is going to them for the most part and trying to understand their their interest in and intent and what kind of deep impact they might want to have. And so we might want to be mindful of that. And so it, it has like the Dean, we've, we've, we've been able to get, finally get in touch and connect the Dean and these folks that I look back and that Dean, our Dean has been here almost, he's been in his position for two and a half years. And there were people you know, before the pandemic that we spent a solid year never being able to line up. And it was almost, it, it was almost blasphemous to say, well, why don't we just do this by phone first? Like that first introduction, <laughs> like we weren't even though we had totally video, we were, nobody was nobody was even thinking about that and so i you know i'm like what are, yeah. what are we learning about this to your point where it's like yeah we maybe we say yeah well of course right now that right now there will be a hunger for us to get get together in person because most of us have spent all our time on zoom but yeah but we but we, but we will reach 
of more yep. equilibrium here where they'll say, okay, wait a minute, you know, yes, some in person, yes, some Zoom, but, but neither person, I don't think anybody's going to go on and go 100% either way going forward. No, look, we just went through a once in a lifetime shift in technology uh, that we can't unlearn, right? We're not going to unlearn Zoom. Our donors aren't going to unlearn the ability to be a Zoom link away from the dean or the fact that it's, it's you know, look, what I'd, be loved to, I'd love to be in Champaign interviewing you in person. Do I think that that's the best use of my time and your time relative to how close we can get in this manner? Like, no, I think this is the right way for a lot of these interactions, but absolutely, I hope we can uh, catch up in person, um, you know, sometime here in the future. And, and so I, you know, I love those examples and I just gotta, I mean, we've kind of already jumped into your time um, at, at Illinois. um, But I, I guess just to put a finer point on it, what inspired you to make the leap? It sounds like it was really, um, uh, you know, having aspirations for more leadership that maybe weren't immediately um, available at uh, Mizzou. I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision, but what was it like pursuing that? Uh, and then also, uh, as you reflect on your early time in the role, uh, it had to be somewhat overwhelming going from selling a mission that you had lived from Kenneth to Boy State to Mizzou to student leadership to 15 years in the advancement shop going to a place where you probably didn't know anybody's names, any of the culture and tradition, the fight song, you name it. No, th- listen, that's right. And, and, and for those folks who know a little bit of Mizzou and, and, and Illinois, you know that um, uh, especially in basketball <laughs> over the last 20, 30 years, there's been this bragging rights game that happens in, you know, would typically happen in St. Louis in December. And a lot of people plan their Christmases <laughs> around this. Uh, and so uh, initially when when I was even considering this, my Mizzou friends, it was like, what? Like, how, you know, how could you? But, and, and, and so you're, and it's like, wow, yeah. But, but you're right. At, at the end of the day, it was going to present some, uh, lots of opportunities. I won't say challenges, lots of opportunities. I was going to get a team that was four times the size of what I had at, at Missouri. And, and also that meant the goal the annual goal was going to be about four times of what we were able to do at, at Missouri in the business school. But we're also talking about a, an alumni population of 30,000. And I'm going to one that was near 90,000, 90,000 alums in France at the time. Right. And one of the things that, that attracted me to was being, was in knowing that in the team, I was going to have, you know, an expanded set of gift offices, but I was also going to be able to have more, donor relations and stewardship and more what I what I coined constituent engagement. I, I knew I was going to have more opportunities if I came to Illinois to really test out some some theories and some, some things that I had been toying with or reading about or hearing other folks do that I just wasn't able to do with the resources at the time in Missouri, it, 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 all, all within the college, right? I, it would have meant I would have had to work a lot more with folks on campus, which was fine, but coming here, I was able to experiment. And so that, so that was sort of pretty exciting to say, wait a minute. Okay, if I've got to start to raise average of $40 million a year, what, do, what, 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 what does that really mean? And so what is, what, is it, what is it like for a current donor? You know, like how much of my 40 million every year am I getting from just raising net new, net new donors? And then you, you know, you gotta, and then you gotta assess like, okay, well, how many net new donors are you getting that you're replacing because maybe you didn't do a good enough job with those first time donors or those consistent donors, but maybe they haven't risen up to your, whatever your major gift officer threshold, you know, sort of amounts, you know, might be. So, I, you know, I came in with like, what would happen if I had a lot of those questions? Like what would happen if we did, we zigged instead of zagged? And so that was, that was really what uh, was able to attract me to come to Illinois. And I worked with some really great um, central leaders and deans who said, okay, well, prove to us why you need to, you know, double your stewardship team from two people to four or five. And so I wrote my, 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 I remember my first six months, I wrote this plan that said, okay, we're starting, we're in the, we're getting ready to go into the public phase of our campaign. We got a $550 million goal and we're, our, you know, with, with our reachbacks and, and our current giving under these campaign counting, we're at about 135 million. <laughs> so it's like, okay, how do we get from in 2005, January 2015, when we look at that, and we know our, our, we know our public launch is probably about two years away, 
and our campaign is going to end in June 2022, and and we have been averaging about $40 million a year. Well, you start to look at that and you say, okay, well, you know, 135, you know, 550 minus 135. If we if we stay at 40 million, then we need 10 years <laughs> to to get to that go to get to that goal. If we just stay at 40 million a year. And so that was, so it was like, okay. And did you have that level of detail while you were interviewing or is that yeah, something you yeah. show up and you're, you're like, uh Oh, we, no, <laughs> we no, got no, some no. ground to catch up here. Yeah. Well, what was great was like, they were so open about it. Like, I mean, like in the job description, they said, here's our average. We expect this to grow. And they told me throughout the process, engineering is X amount of the campus. Historically, this is, this is what, this is what engineering donors have done, whether it's been to engineering or across campus. And so I, 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 I went into this eyes wide open, which I appreciated. They were like, look, at the time it was like our campaign is going to be somewhere around two and a quarter billion dollars. And we need, we need engineering to, at the very least, make certain that you hit 25% of that goal, which is, you know, around at 550 million. And then they were like, right, we'd like, we'd love it if you could stretch that. Right. And so, and so now we sit at, you know, now we sit at about 600 million for the college you know, with a, with a little over a year left in the campaign. Right. So, so if we can get to like another, if we can get to 650, even 700, right. Like that would be, that would be pretty remarkable, but no, I knew, I knew those things going in and that, and that was quite frankly, that excited me because I knew if I did the right things that I, they, they would give me the resources that I would need to kind of you know, move these things along. So I've been very, you know, so I've been very fortunate to be in two good situations, Missouri, where, you know, I kept getting resourced up over time and then coming to Illinois. I love it. I love it. And congrats on all of the, uh, the success and momentum. And uh, it's got to feel pretty good having made up that ground. And, you know, I don't know if you can say you're playing with the house's money now as you are uh, above the campaign goal, but, you know, it seems like now you're, you're working from a position of strength. No, yeah, right. And and who doesn't love that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Dale, if you don't mind me asking, um, uh, you know, I, I was struck, you know, I love just getting to know folks via LinkedIn, seeing kind of what, um, you know, what you're putting out there for content or what's resonating with you as we try to get to know our guests and friends in the community better. Um, and I was just struck a year ago, uh, June 4th, uh, not even a year ago. I mean, it seems like years ago, uh, and, right. and maybe like yesterday too, but you, you wrote a post that, that obviously struck a chord with a lot of folks. I'm just going to read it here uh, real quickly, and then I just want to ask you a, a couple of questions. You wrote, I am not okay. There have been tough periods in my life for sure. However, this pandemic and its impact, particularly for African Americans, as well as the events of Arbery, Taylor, Cooper, and Floyd, leave me with, with a simple feeling. When will we ever be enough? When will we matter? And you wrote the fight for consistent equality and fairness should not still be the issue of 2020. Uh, yet it was and it is as we sit here in 2021. Uh, but you also referenced the impact that one of Martin Luther King's um, uh, speeches titled The Drum Major Instinct had uh, on you. And I just wanted to kind of get your perspective on what inspired you to post that, the reaction that you received on LinkedIn um, you know, I don't know if you'd, if you'd been as public about those feelings, uh, in the past, uh, and then why the drum major instinct is something that everybody working in the advancement field who is, um, sharing your frustration, but also, uh, wants to make a positive impact as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, et cetera. Um, you know, why does all, what would you kind of summarize there? Yeah, I, I would say, Brent, that you know, in, in all honesty, I, I think you know, I I had not really spoken this publicly, uh, you know, just about my own like pent up feelings, just you know, around inequality and, and injustice, and and from my different perspectives, right? Being one, being an African American man who works in higher education, where right, which and and was a non non athlete is how I you know <laughs> went to college. Um, you know, I also carry the scars of, of being in a rural community and growing up in a rural community and, and, you know, and, and, and the, both the good and the bad that, that those experiences, you know, shape me, but I was always one, I'm always been an optimist. And so I've always sort of been able to kind of bottle things up and, you know, just sort of find a release and, and just do my work 
oftentimes sort of behind the scenes and not just, you know, speak up, but not, not certainly not in this public way. And for years, I have been, um, been a student of King and just, and just been enamored. And so years ago, before, before this was like mainstream and was used, you know, as a part of the, you know, controversially a couple years ago at the Super Bowl with a Dodge, basically used excerpts of the drum major instinct to try to sell trucks, right? It was a huge hullabaloo there. But what what struck me was um, was just lots of different things, but I, I would say this. So the date of this sermon was February 4th, 1968. Two months before King's, you know, untimely death, right? Through assassination. And so here, you know, here he is like laying out to bear. And what, what really struck me initially was uh, someone of, of, who's religious and a spiritual person. And, you know, the way in which King could, could translate the Bible, right? Like into more everyday, like leadership lessons. And so it was what was interesting to me, you know, he hooked me when he's talking about, you know, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who, you know, who go to Jesus and ask his permission, you know, to sit on his right and his left, right? Which is, you know, in, in the Bible, you know, you talk about sitting at the right hand of God and and this, and and it was, and what I loved about it, and King was such a masterful storyteller, was the was the point that he was making, was it like, Jesus could have been mad by this, right? Jesus could have thrown a fit, he's the son of God and those types of things, but he didn't. He, you know, he uses this to, to teach us all a lesson. And and what King says is, before, you know, I love, love how he says something like, but before we get mad at James and John, like, let's think about this drum major instinct. And he talks about this, this ego that we all have that we are born with. And, you know, he, I love how he talks about, you know, our, our, how he attributes our first cry as a baby, as this little bundle of, where these little bundle of egos were seeking attention, right? And he goes on, he goes on down the way and he's, and he's just, he's telling these real stories about how all of us have this innate sense whether we're really outward with it or not, this sort of drum major instinct, this desire to be out front, this desire to lead the parade. And I think about that often as I've been a leader or seen or tapped on the shoulder to say, hey, you, we think you should be a leader, you know, and this and that. And I start to think about how much of, how much of my leadership do I make about other people and serving other people or do I make about myself? And so that's why King's words for me they, they hit home for me at a, on a certain level because they, I find them to be very humbling and a good reminder about what the right type of leadership skills look like. And that really is about understanding who we are and what drives us and taking that and using that, as, using that in the most positive ways possible to help each other and to bring other people and help them discover, you know, that 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 drum major instinct that they have in themselves and how best to properly channel that, right, in your organization, in your personal life, so that we get the best of ourselves. We we get the best of ourselves every day, and we give the best of ourselves to each other to solve lots of big issues or to do better, more impactful work in whatever field we choose, you know, to go into. And so that has been, you know, that has been something that has stuck with me. And I, and I will tell you, one of the things that also at the time that made me think in, a, in drawing back on, you know, growing up in a, in a smaller community is like, I really identified with the part where King talks about one of the times that they were in jail. And he's, he's relaying a story about how they would, he, 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 he describes as they would just talk, talk calmly and honestly with like the jailers and the sheriff and things. And they start talking about race and they start, you know, they just, they just start talking about, and King's just trying to understand why they think they're superior. And he's, and he talks about this and he says that, you know, that for that, a lot of the problems of racism in America between whites and blacks, right. Is that like that King says, whites have the satisfaction of being white and the, the privileges that get afforded to them you know, from that. And, but when you really start to get to know each other, <laughs> I love how he says that he, he, he says, and I, I have to quote this because I, I love how he said what he said, something like uh, when, when I learned how much those white brothers were making, <laughs> I told them that they should be marching with us. Right. And he was, and he was relaying the fact that like, 
they can barely you know send their kids to school or buy them clothes and but for them being white they think that somehow they're superior and he was making the point that like he says that you are put in the you are put in the position to of supporting your oppressor and he was trying to connect the dots and say that like listen the same forces that hold down negroes hold down poor whites and i think that's very i think that that's very true today that oftentimes we are so much similar, but because we have the satisfaction of being this over this, we let that cloud the reality of the situation. And I, there was, so there's just, there's just so many lessons that you know I take away you know from that. And the other thing, the last thing I'll say is the thing that I wanted to introduce people to was how prophetic King's ending was, right? And how he talked about how he wanted to be remembered. Right. And he says, if, if, if you know, if, if, if you are around when I meet my when I meet my day is, is how he is, how he frames this. Right. He starts to say, you know, I want to be I want you to remember me as Jesus wanted us to do, which is which is for us to take the drum major instinct and use it to be to let our lives be uh, be be the best representation of what it means to be a servant leader. And to be in service of others, and I'm just—I love how he talks about. If you happen to be at my funeral, you know, don't. First of all, tell them don't let it go on too long, right? And don't talk about all these awards and things that I that that I won. That's not important. If you want to talk about me, talk about how I was a drum major for justice. You know, I was a drum major for peace, right? I, like all these other shallow, all these awards and things won't mean anything. And that, and so I. I, I really identify with that even as I'm leading my team, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position of being this, the chief advancement officer and the leader of a team of about 20 or so individuals, right? But if those folks, if, the, if I don't connect with them and they don't believe in me and I don't believe in them, then I, either of us can choose to leave each other at any moment. And so what are we doing together? What are, what are we instilling in each other that says it's important for us to be here in this moment together and to work together and to accomplish these things together and to grow together? And so it just it there are lots of things that I, I could go on and on about this. That, but every, Dale, I mean, every time I listen to it, Brent, every time I listen to it, I tell you, I pick up something different than the last time. And I've listened to this thing a hundred times. And so I, I can't help but try to share it with as many people as I can in hopes that it brings them some, some similar, uh, some similar happiness and enjoyment. Well, your, your passion and conviction and authenticity is just, it's super inspiring. And I have to add, first of all, if you're listening, follow Dale on LinkedIn, you know, you can see the post, connect with them, reach out, let them know that you met him on the podcast. And uh, I have no doubt that he'll, that he'll um, accept that connection. But I, I just have to ask, uh, given that you maybe had this, this pent up feeling and you finally were compelled uh, through everything that was going on last year um, to share publicly, uh, even seeing the people who responded, you, you know, lots of friends uh, in, in the industry, people who've been on the podcast, you know, it really struck a chord with people. Were you surprised by that? And did you have any unexpected follow up uh, coming out of what was really just a simple but profound post on LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say it was it one. It was a reminder of like the number of really great people <laughs> that I've gotten to know along the way, and that we just that I I was like there was certain there was so many people posting. And I was like, man, I remember when we used to sit and talk, and where did that go? Where we and we just got so busy, right? But what I really what I really appreciated was the way in which people just engaged. And just said, you know, the, the just the, the simple messages of people that said, "Hey, I love you, man. It's been such a long time," and 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 or people just saying, "Yeah, you know, this, this is right. This is this is a time." And and I and I and I think for me, uh, you know, I was I was just overwhelmed by the just I just felt like the real love that people had, and it was one of those things where I was like, I don't even know if I should post this. I can't tell you the number of times, Brent, where I was like, but it I but I it was. It was, you know, it was so, it, things have been building up into me for such a long time that I thought if I don't release this in this way, I'm going to explode and, 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 and probably explode in really unhealthy ways. Cause there were times where 
I was on Twitter and I just wanted to just go off or like, like Facebook, which I'm not, I'm a, I'm a lurker. I don't really, you know, I'm not really on there, but there was so many, so many things that were, you know, just being said about people and things. And, and it was so, it was just hard. And so this was sort of my contribution and, and it felt like the most natural way. Yeah. Right. Well, Dale, you know, sort of try to live my life and stuff. So for whatever it's worth, as somebody who wants to learn, you know, your perspective, who wants to learn more about um, the history, the status quo, the future, I would encourage you to, to write more, you know, be, you know, be, you know, don't, don't be shy. Um, and, and I think worst case scenario, nobody responds or doesn't, it doesn't connect and that's okay. And it's down the feed and nobody will remember it tomorrow. But I, I suspect there are a lot of people who would love to hear more uh, from you, even just based on what we've discussed here today. I, I do have to ask maybe coming full circle, like the work you were doing with Jim and Kathy Brazil early in your career, that was DEI work before we called the DEI. And, you know, that was aligned with a lot of the, you know, issues, social unrest, you name it, that are racism, that are top of mind to, as, as much today as they ever have been. Um, I'm curious from where you sit, you know, just thinking about the conversations with the Brazils way before this was in the news or at least in the social media world the way it is today um, to where we are now. How different does it feel? Or, or maybe from your vantage point, it's just um, it's another chapter in the same story. Or does it feel like there's um, an inflection point or, or maybe a, a new level of commitment to change that um, is different than than other points in your career? Yeah, no, I, I, so, yeah, so I, you know, look, when I, when I reflect back on Brazil, I, re, I remember, I remember being proud to work on that gift, especially because when you're, you know, when you're, when you're an alumni, like you come out of alumni relations and you're going to lots of events, you hear lots of different conversations. And sometimes, you know, I felt invisible at those, at those events and sort of like blended in to sometimes I think people thought I was like part of the help or the staff. And so that some of the things that you would hear, it was like mind boggling, right? And so for me, initially, the, 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 the way in which we ultimately structured the Brazil gift is it, it actually felt to me like, wow, finally somebody gets it. Somebody understands that like, there are really smart and talented African-Americans, especially in the state of Missouri, who just who want a chance to, to go to an institution like the University of Missouri and be taken seriously. And I felt like the Brazil, the way the Brazil gift was structured and the way it was presented into the university community, it felt like some validation. Not that there weren't another, myself and lots of other folks who hadn't already gone to this institution and who had in their own way tried to showcase that. But it really, but it, it felt like, boy, that was really kind of a validation, right? And so at that time, I was really hopeful that that was gonna start this sort of movement or whatever, right? Like you're young and, so optimistic and really naive and 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 truthfully it really did it didn't usher in you know a new a a, a new wave of donors who might have been like-minded it you know it never did like take off that way and so what i but i what i think i look back what in hearing your question now if that gift happened today you know like if the brazils and i were met today this i do think it would have more staying power because I feel like that, 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 that the conversations that we've been having, it's been forcing institutions to own up to this and not just think that this thing is gonna get swept under the rug or the next big thing is gonna move, is gonna move this off the, you know, off the front burner, off the front page or what have you, right? So I, I do think that what feels different this time is that there are more voices, more and more diverse voices that are saying enough is enough these we didn't get to these issues overnight. These issues didn't start in 2016 or on January 6, 2021. These things have been inherent. These things have been in bubbling. Go back and listen to the drum major instinct and listen to how King describes the civil rights movement and things that were happening in the 60s and tell me, tell me whether or not you agree that the parallels to today are frightening, right? And so, but I do think that there is just like that there, there's the sustainability is because there are more voices who feel empowered, right? And who feel that there are more empowered voices there to back them up. 
that I think keep this at the forefront in a way that I, that I am hopeful, truly, truly hopeful that it really does, you know, usher in deeper conversations and deeper commitments in this way that more people begin to say, look back on this and say, yes, this was a time where we really got this right. And oh, by the way, not just we got it right, but we, we put things in place so that we don't have to have this type of period ever again in our nation and in our world. And that's, that's, the, that's the optimistic side of, of everything. For well, Dale, look, I, I share your hope and optimism. And I do believe that we are in this unique moment uh, in the history of philanthropy where um, the, the capital available for impact is greater than ever before. And, and it's one of the, the real, uh, um, you know, unique aspects of this economic downturn is that it was not distributed equally, that uh, real estate prices are high and the public stock markets are high and the private markets are high and the IPO markets are strong. And so there's been tremendous wealth creation. And that, that wealth creation has happened in concert with with uh, social justice having a light shined on it, with Main Street being challenged by the pandemic. And I'm hopeful that with the good work of you and your colleagues and all of our peers in the, in the case community, that we can really take this moment of like real pent up desire for impact and wealth and really go and pursue um, problem solving at a scale that might otherwise uh, be more difficult to pull off. And uh, uh, it's gonna take everybody, you know, working collectively, um, but I just can't thank you enough for sharing your point of view, your optimism, the, the realities of um, your growth and comfort in, in even speaking out on some of this publicly. Uh, it's just, it's super important and it's a privilege to get to know you better. Same, Brent, I, I really, I'm so glad that we were able to able to connect with uh, through your colleague Marcus and I you know I'm I'm definitely look forward to future conversations and following along yeah. with what you guys are doing you know even in ever true and the conversations that you're challenging us on in terms of just even how we think about <laughs> engaging our community yeah. of donors and and broad and broadening you know that broadening who not not, bro not broadening who we're talking to in addition to what we're talking to them about so Thank you. Let me conclude with asking you, uh, are you hiring and where can people who are listening stay in touch? What's the best way to stay in touch? Yeah. So, um, so we are hiring at the University of Illinois. In fact, I'm on, I'm on a search committee for a chief advancement officer in our uh, nationally number one ranked iSchool. <laughs> and so I'm putting a plug in that because I think the, uh, the early application deadline is April the 12th coming up, but we'll, we'll keep that open. And we have other, other positions you know, open here. And as you said, LinkedIn is my preferred sort of social media. It's the thing I'm most active on. I'm uh, out of Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat or any of those other things. It's for me, it's LinkedIn all the way. So people look me up, Dale Wright, Granger College of Engineering, and uh, I'll look forward to engaging other folks. And I appreciate, Brent, you giving me this platform. Absolutely, Dale. It's been a privilege. And uh, with that, I will sign off. Dale Wright from the Granger College of Engineering at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Brent.